If you're new with us, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel, verse by verse, and we come to this marvelous text here in chapter 22. So we invite you in on this study together. Uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help uh, before we dive in. Father, we've just sung about your goodness and faithfulness, and right now we're experiencing one, of your, one expression of your goodness to us and giving us another Sunday to hear your word together. We see your goodness in preserving this text for us. We see your goodness manifested in the person of Jesus who shows us how to live and who would be the one to forgive us through his work on the cross and who is interceding for us. Help us today to fix our eyes now upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in his good name. Amen. Throughout the history of the church, various individuals have presented arguments or proofs, reasons to trust in the Bible. Uh, that includes things like the reliability of the manuscripts, the archaeological evidence, the internal consistency of the scriptures, the number of fulfilled prophecies that we have, eyewitness testimonies, and each of these proofs give us reason to believe. One still needs to believe, but our faith is not a leap into the dark, it's a leap into the light. We have many good reasons to believe, and these reasons strengthen the faith of existing believers when we read apologetics or give, give reasons for believing in the reliability of the Bible. And I want to throw out here in our text, we have an additional proof, and that is the unflattering picture of the disciples. There's a certain ring of authenticity, uh, a ring of truthfulness as we stop and consider what these knuckleheads look like. And if, if these leaders were wanting to make up the story of Christianity, then surely they would have made themselves look better. Why do the gospel writers present the disciples in the way that they do? If they, uh, they're, they're simply presenting things uh, as, as they were. And so what I'm talking about is we have three passages here that show us something of the disciples' uh, you know, sort of a profile. Uh, Jesus has just taught them, the text we looked at last week in the Last Supper, that the most important event in the history of the world is about to go down, uh, and that, but he's going to take his cup anew with them in the kingdom. And what do we read them doing next? Arguing about who's the greatest. And then we read of Peter's denial, which he says will never happen. And this would be the leader of the early church. And then after that, Jesus tells them to expect opposition and that they need to get some swords. I think he's speaking metaphorically that opposition is coming. And then he mentions the cross, that he's going to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, and he's going to be crucified, and yet it almost goes right past them. And they return to the, this issue of, of getting some swords. And so we see a very unflattering picture of the disciples that again give a, a note of authenticity and truth as we read their story. But there's also hope in this reality. The disciples eventually did get it. That should encourage us. Their lives would be transformed as the events of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension would unfold. And it's good to know today that Jesus still uses knuckleheads for his glory. He's still merciful to us. He still restores failures. He, he, he still intercedes for us. And, and so here, the disciples... Um, uh, attitudes and actions actually give Jesus the occasion to teach, and he teaches some really wonderful things in this text, a text that's preserved for us only in Luke. After Matthew and Mar uh, in Matthew and Mark, right after the Last Supper, the, the text immediately goes to the Mount of Olives. 
But Luke has included sort of this extended table teaching of Jesus, and I'm glad that he has. So let's look at it in three parts. First of all, correction and consummation. Secondly, intercession and restoration. And thirdly, preparation and crucifixion. All right, so first of all, correction and consummation. Jesus corrects the disciples' view of greatness, and then he points them ahead to the consummation of the kingdom. So it says in verse 24, a dispute also arose among them. You see the word also, connecting us back to the previous text. He's just talked about the, uh, the bread and the cup and Judas's betrayal. Uh, and so this is the same setting. And this, the conversation then has shifted dramatically from who's going to betray Jesus to the other end of the spectrum of who's the greatest. Now this is not the first time that these disciples have had this conversation. Recall in chapter 9, Jesus took a child in his arms and said uh, the greatest person was the least. And there was the time in which James and John uh, asked if they could sit on thrones next to Jesus. And then there was a time in Mark 9, 34, where Jesus was asking the disciples what they were talking about along the road, and the, right, the, the text says they kept silent, for on the way they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. So you get the, the idea that this was an ongoing debate about which disciple uh, was the greatest. And now, not only is the debate silly, but it's so out of place in light of the, the setting here. Jesus is about to go and be crucified, the most important event in the history of the world, and they're wondering who's number one. They want to be a hot shot. And the reality is these hot shots would all soon abandon Jesus. So we're warned here, I think, indirectly about self-centered pride, that we must seek to always and regularly put this sin to death. Right? The Bible teaches us that pride goes before a fall. And pride also kills spiritual joy. What I mean by that is this. Many believers fail to be happy because they don't feel like other people know how great they are. Their, their joy is tied to people recognizing their achievements, whether that's intellectually or athletically or in business or as parents. And so this is in our flesh that we must seek to put to death. J.C. Ryle says, this sin is a very old one. Ambition, self-esteem, and self-deceit lie deep at the bottom of all people's hearts. And then he says this, and often in the hearts of those who least expect it. So if I don't think I'm prideful, I'm probably the, the, the front of the line, right? The, the, those who, who least expect it. And so Jesus reproves them, and he turns their view of greatness on its head and gives us a radically different way to live and, and a way to lead. When he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority are often called benefactors. That was a term uh, used to describe gods or rulers. And so this Gentile model of authority among ancient Near Eastern, Eastern kings was, was very well known. They often ruled like tyrants, and the Greeks appropriated this similar vision of leaders. And often rulers would dole out uh, favors for those who were of a, a lesser status and receive this title, a benefactor when they really weren't doing this uh, out, of self out of interest for others, but out of, out of self-interest for themselves. So that was very customary of lording it over people, dominating, being a tyrant, and then when you show some benevolence or grace, it comes from a twisted motive. 
They wanted to impose their will upon others. And so Jesus says, this is not how it is to be in the kingdom. Notice the, the contrast, verse 26, but not so with you. He looks at the disciples and says, be different. We don't lord over people, and we're not manipulating people, doing certain things for them so that they could call us gracious or whatever it is. So Jesus uh, redefines greatness. He tells the disciples, this is how you lead, this is how you live. Joni Erickson Tata, who's a wonderful writer, uh, has an article called Sent to Serve, and she's, she cites a, a survey that was done at Harvard several years ago where MBA students were asked to develop a strategic plan entitled, What Do I Hope to Achieve in Life After Graduation? The number one priority was wealth, the number two priority was notoriety, and the number three was status. What do I hope to achieve? And no one put in the survey serving other people. And Jesus teaches us here that it should be number one. That greatness involves serving others. Now to do that, we've got to address our hearts. And he throws in this line, you should become the youngest. That is the attitude that, that we adopt. That we serve with a youthful deference. We consider ourselves in that day that youth were at the bottom of the ladder. So Jesus says to be a leader, to be great, means you assume the position of the lowest. Now we know what this is like in, in many ways as freshmen are often picked on, right? And asked to do things. When I was, uh, played baseball 100 years ago, um, we would always say freshmen get the equipment. And when it should have been, if we, should have, we weren't reading our Bible back then. Uh, I wasn't. I should have been reading the Bible. If they was, we, the corrective would have been seniors get the equipment. Those, those who are in leadership, those who are at the top, are to be the ones who are serving. And so he says, take your position and recognize that you've been given a position to bless others and not to, to gain from others. Adopt a posture of humility Adopt this, this, this vision of servant leadership. It's very hard to work this into our hearts. That's why we need uh, his grace daily to do so. Many of us can identify with the ego of Muhammad Ali, who used to walk around saying, I am the greatest. Uh, the story is told of Muhammad Ali was on an airplane one time, and the stewardess says, sir, you need to put your seatbelt on. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> right? And we, we need to adopt this, this posture that Jesus is telling us. Now, the one who is great in this story is Jesus, and that's why he says, uh, who's greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? And the answer in that, in that day and time was the one who's at the table is the great one, not the server. But then he says, is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you who serves? The greatest one, Jesus, is the servant. And so let's, let's not be too... Too, too uh, puffed up in order to humble ourselves and be servants. There's a line in uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, it's sort of like the Jerusalem phone book, where you've got all of these names of people who are building the wall, and then it says of a certain group, chapter 3 verse 5, the nobles wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord. They wouldn't stoop. Jesus shows us how to stoop. He shows us how to serve. And that's why when you read of stories of true servant leaders, it's so refreshing, isn't it? It's it, I, like one of my pastoral heroes is, is a guy named John Stott. He's with the Lord now. 
Um, but I read his biography last year, and it was his private life that was just so compelling. And the story is told, uh, a guy named uh, Rene Padilla uh, tells a story of traveling with John Stott to Argentina. They arrived late, and it was a, just a torrential rainstorm, and so they were muddy when they arrived to the hotel. And the next morning, he woke up, and John Stott was cleaning his shoes. And he says, you don't have to clean my shoes. And he says, well, you know, Jesus taught us to wash feet. We really don't wash feet in today's culture, but I can at least, wash, or I can at least clean your shoes. Uh, it was once asked of Stott, you, you've had a brilliant career, first at Cambridge, pastor at 29, chaplain to the queen. What is your ambition now? And he responded simply with, to be more like Jesus. That's the goal. Jesus has shown us the way. He shows us how to live. And then he says to the disciples, he pivots, and he commends them. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Now, it's sort of an abrupt shift here in, in the story, but for all of the faults of the disciples and, in the, and the faults of the disciples in our text, tucked in the middle here is actually a positive word about them. Jesus commends them because they have stayed with him. What he's talking about is for these three years or whatever, they've traveled with Jesus. They left livelihood they, they have sacrificed a lot. Uh, there's been spiritual warfare. And so Jesus gives them a kind word of appreciation. And I, this is so Jesus. There, there's no bitterness in Jesus. I mean, he could look at these disciples. I would look at them at some point and just be like, oh, forget it. But, there's, but instead, he commends them for staying with him thus far. Ralph Davis says, there, this staggers us. There is simply no meanness in Jesus. Here are these sometimes bickering, sometimes dense as a post disciples, and Jesus is telling them how deeply grateful he is for their companionship. Jesus never forgets one thing you do for him. He remembers, and he rewards. Notice what he tells them next. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he's looking ahead to the future consummation of the kingdom, and he says, I have assigned to you this kingdom. So in other words, why argue about greatness now when this is your future? Why jockey to be the top dog in this present moment when a kingdom awaits you? Notice the future here, my table, my kingdom. And you're going to receive this not as a result of exalting yourself, but as a result of humbling yourself and serving others. And he notes that the disciples have a unique role in redemptive history, judging Israel's 12 tribes, speaking, I think, of the, of the whole people of God. They had a very privileged position. We read in Revelation 21 that their names are written on the foundations of the New Jerusalem. But the blessings of the kingdom of dining with the king, and eating and drinking at the king's table, this is for all of God's people. We're promised this. We have greatness waiting on us. So, see this vision of greatness that Jesus gives us. It's service. See the picture of, of greatness. It's Jesus. See the motive for greatness. It's the kingdom that is to come. So let's change our view of greatness this morning. Greatness is humbly serving others in Jesus' name. Whether you're befriending the friendless, caring for the sorrowful, helping uh, in, uh, those who, who are in need of assistance, whether you're the sympathetic friend who's listening, you're binding up the broken. Remember that everyone can be great. 
That's what Martin Luther King Jr. said. Everyone can be great because anybody can serve. He said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. Praise God. You don't have to know Plato or Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You only need, he said, a heart of grace. So let's take on the unnoticed tasks. Let's take on opportunities to serve. Let's avoid the time excuses that we often use, like I'll serve Christ one day, or I used to serve Christ back in the day. Let's avoid the impact excuse. I'm sure my little service won't mean that much. It does mean much. It matters to Jesus. He didn't, he didn't forget one thing these disciples did for him. And so here we have a correction, and we have a view to the consummation of the kingdom. Now the second uh, passage, uh, verses 31 to 34, speaks of intercession and restoration. The conversation shifts again. This time, Jesus speaks a word to uh, uh, Peter, saying, Simon, Simon. (laughs) I feel like every word Jesus would say to Peter, he could start out like this. Simon, Simon. And he says something very serious, doesn't he? Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, if you have an ESV that's similar to mine, you'll have a footnote that says the you is plural. That's the way it is often in, in Greek. And so he, he's addressing all of the disciples, but as sort of this first among equals with Simon, he is addressed. And then it shifts back to singular in verse 32, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turned again, because he's the one that's going to deny Jesus, Point is, he's addressing all of them, letting, it's not just Simon that is going to face the, the evil one. And uh, it's not just the disciples, but also all believers throughout history that Satan wants to sift us like wheat. He says he, he demanded to have you. This is sort of like when Satan went uh, to God and asked for permission to afflict Job. He wants to sift you, that is to shake you, to, to make your faith fail. But Jesus says a wonderful word, doesn't he? Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. That's good news today. Because we're stumbling and fumbling all the way to heaven, aren't we? But Jesus has us. He wants our faith to fail. Notice the emphasis on your faith. Because if he takes that, he takes everything. Don't don't be surprised if you have moments of doubt. And don't just chalk that up to intellectual questions. Satan, if he takes our faith, he takes justification by faith. We have no peace with God. If he takes faith, we won't pray. If he takes our faith, we have no hope of heaven. If he takes our faith, then what do we do with the righteous shall live by faith? He takes our very life. But he will not succeed, Jesus says, as he directs it now to Peter, and he says, but I have prayed for you. And he says that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's assurance rests upon the intercessory work of Jesus. Church, listen, Satan may be praying on us but jesus is praying for us and that's our hope today he's praying on you but jesus is praying for you jc ryle said this put it on the screen it moved me so much this week the continued existence of grace in a believer's heart is a great and constant miracle 
His enemies are so mighty and his strength is so small. The world is so full of traps and his heart is so weak that it seems at first sight impossible for him to reach heaven. This passage explains how he is kept safe. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God who always lives to intercede for him. He has a watchful advocate who is daily pleading for him, seeing all his daily necessities and obtaining daily supplies of mercy and grace for his soul. His grace never totally dies because Christ lives to intercede. Grace isn't dying because Christ is interceding. And he says to Peter, when you have turned back, uh, a brother pointed out to me after the nine, he loves how Jesus says, not if you turn back, but he tells Peter, when you turn back, that you're going to do something. There's no doubt about you turning back. He says, I know you're going to turn back. And when you do, I want you to strengthen the brothers. This is speaking of Peter's temporary defection when he denies Jesus. He will tell Jesus, or he tells Peter about this, and, and Peter, uh, in very Peter-like fashion, uh, denies it. And he says, I'm ready to go with you to prison, or, uh, or even to death. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, once again, the rooster's going to crow, and three times you're going to deny me. But it's such a tender passage, isn't it? As Jesus looks to this man that he loves so much, who cannot fathom in the moment of turning away from his Lord. And he says, but it's not going to be the end. When you turn, I'm not only going to restore you in your soul, but I'm going to use you in the church. You are going to strengthen your brothers and sisters. And that's what we see Peter doing in the book of Acts, don't we? Preaching with boldness, leading the church, leads the mission to Cornelius, gospel going to the Gentile world. So let's praise Jesus today for his grace. He enables us to persevere to the end. Satan is praying on us. He is praying for us. Jesus' prayers are effective. John says, we have an advocate with the Father. Praise God that we do. And let's also remember that one of the purposes that Jesus has for preserving us to the end is not just to make heaven, but to strengthen our brothers and sisters. As he restores us, as we experience his grace, we're asking, who may I build up in the faith? Who may I encourage? How may the Lord use me? Well, let's move on to the, the final section, preparation and crucifixion. Jesus wants the disciples now to be prepared for a new season of life. And he's going to tell them about opposition that's coming. And that opposition will be so intense that he will be crucified. And then after the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, the disciples will go into the world to bear witness to Jesus. And he wants them to know um, that that's, they shouldn't be surprised by all the opposition. And so the way he says it, you see it in verse 35 there, when I sent you out with no money bag, this is earlier uh, in, in Luke's gospel, we saw that disciples go out, they just stayed within Israel, and he told them, don't take anything with you. And he says, did you lack anything? And they said, no. Then he says in 36, but now, you notice the transition, now, there's a new time, there's a new season. Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So he's saying, you're about to enter into a new season of life. These disciples would not be confined just to Israel. They would go out to the whole Gentile world. And unlike when they, he sent them out the first time, they could rely upon the hospitality of Jewish kinsmen. Uh, now they're going to need to take some stuff. And now we see how this has lived out in the modern world with what we need airplanes and we need 
you know, the finances, and we need all the stuff we need to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the sort of thing that Jesus is talking about here, that you need to be ready, uh, that there's going to, there, there are going to be trials. So, you know, Paul talks about frequently the, the journeys and the, the bandits on the road and, and, and all of the uh, danger that was involved in getting the gospel to people. And he says to them that this opposition is so intense that this scripture is going to be fulfilled about me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. He wants them to know that things are not going to be spinning out of control in just a few hours. That what's about to happen at Golgotha, the place of the skull, is actually going to fulfill a prophecy that's over 700 years old. I'm going to be counted among the transgressors. And so he tells them about this central event in human history that the prophets spoke about. And notice the disciples' response. Look, Lord, here are two swords. <laughs> they, 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 it's just sort of like went right by them. It's like, listen, guys, I'm about to be, numb. I am going to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And they're still on swords. Here are two swords. And Jesus just says, it is enough. I'm, I'm done here. I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> like, if you're a teacher, this should encourage you, okay? <laughs> now, how many times do we have to go through this? How many times do I have to tell you? Um, and Jesus here just says, I, I, I can't. I, let's, let, let's just move on, he says. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even. Now, uh, what's the swords? Uh, that's, there's a lot of ink spilled about this. Uh, I'll spare you all of it. But I think Jesus is speaking metaphorically here that he's not um, saying that they need, though I don't think it would be a bad idea to take a sword with you as you, you know, try to preserve your life. Um, maybe you're packing a sword today. That's fine with me. I don't, I don't have any problems with swords, okay? Um, but in light of what Jesus says next in the next passage, remember Peter's got one. He cuts the guy's ear off. Like, who cuts a guy's ear off? It's just remarkable to me. That's next week, though. Um, Jesus tells him, no more of this. Put it away. So most, the majority of scholars argue that Jesus here is just using this as a symbol of conflict, that you're going to need some money, you're going to need some clothes, and you need to be ready for conflict, opposition. I'm sending you into the world. And the reality is we need more than a sword, a physical sword, to get the gospel to the world. We need spiritual resources. We need the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. We need enabling grace. And so he's preparing them. And the good news is, we have that in Jesus. You know, when Isaiah ha has this mention that Jesus cites here, this, this reference, this is what the, the whole verse says. But he was poured out, but he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Then it says, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. It's interesting that it, uh, we're back on this subject of Jesus' intercessory prayer. What these disciples needed is exactly what we need. We need a substitute, one who would bear our sin away, and we need one who lives to intercede for us. And that's what we have. That's what we have. Yes, we will face intense spiritual warfare. Satan will demand to have us like wheat, to sift us like wheat. But Jesus is praying for us. This Savior who was crucified for us, who rose for us, is now interceding on our behalf. So as we look at this text, the whole text, I would just conclude by saying,
Jesus is amazing. Say, Tony, what are you talking about today? Jesus is amazing. Well, you know what we're going to talk about next week? Jesus is amazing. (laughs) And then one day we're going to see him. And he's going to be more amazing than we've ever dreamed. I mean, this Jesus teaches us how to live life. This is how you live. This, This is the good life, serving others in Jesus' name. This Savior died for us. This Savior right now is praying for us. And this Savior is coming again for us. To know true greatness, you only need to look to Jesus. He is great because of who he is. And he is great because of what he has done. He created the world. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. He rose from the dead, and he's coming again. Jesus is the great one, and he's greatly to be praised. So let's praise him now, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would write its truths upon our hearts. Give us a posture of a servant. Help us to be quick to serve, take on unnoticed task, not jockey to be number one, but just marvel at the fact that we're in your kingdom. I pray that, uh, Lord Jesus, that you would encourage our souls with this idea of you interceding for us, that our faith would not fail, that you would preserve us until the very end. And as we face intense spiritual conflict in this world, I pray we would not rely upon human resources, but we rely upon you. And I pray that you would use us even this week uh, to commend the gospel to people who need it. Lord Jesus, we prepare our hearts now by taking the Lord's Supper, uh, in, or prepare our hearts now as we prepare to take uh, the Lord's Supper, looking back on what you have done for us and looking ahead to all that you have for us. We pray this in your good name. Amen.